It's a uniquely American news story, one that eddies until it surges, and then, after it has mostly receded from view, surges again. When it does, it tops the news cycle with a pretty standard series of responses. The sorrow and vigils before healing can begin, a clash over interpretations of rights, and unresolved questions about root causes. It's the story of mass shootings, of which there are still hundreds each year in the United States. Staff writer Patrick Johnson, based in Georgia for The Monitor, wrote a step-back story not long after the October 25th shootings in Lewiston, Maine. Patrick has covered many U.S. stories that touch on or go right at shootings and at guns and American gun culture, a culture with many forms, including one in which responsible gun ownership can be a rite of passage, a signifier of self-reliance. This is why we wrote this. I'm Clay Collins. Patrick joins us today. Hey, Patrick. Hey, how are you doing? So first off, you're one of a small number of staffers with regular exposure to this story as part of your beat. How do you as a reporter and as a human being deal with the relentlessly cyclical nature of the American mass shooting story? Yeah, sometimes I wonder. (laughs) You know, I'm a dad and I'm an outdoors person and student of the Constitution and I try to see it from all different points of view. And, um, but at the end of the day, it's a great American tragedy. I was at Sandy Hook just a day after the terrible shooting there Mm. in 2012. That was my, the first time I had covered an event like this as a reporter. It was kind of earth shattering. Um, this was right before Christmas and I went to a pizza restaurant in Newtown, Connecticut, where it happened. And, um, there was a Christmas party there and uh, it turned out to be the firefighters who had responded to that shooting just a couple of days before that had decided, you know, they wanted to do their Christmas party. So I ended up talking with one of the firefighters. What I'll never forget was the sadness in his eyes. It's kind of still with me, still chokes me up because <laughs> mm. uh, it was really a lens into the true impact on people when something like that happens. So you know, my own kids had to go through active shooter drill. So it's something I definitely uh, struggle to process sometimes, but I, I've been covering this for a long time and I do see um, progress of its own kind. That's maybe not what people on either side would like to see, but there's definitely signs of progress, even though it's hard to see sometimes with some of the statistics. Mm. So Patrick, after Lewiston, the Monitor's first response was a piece on how people were coming together in the wake of the tragedy. But then the discussion turned to how to go deeper, and our attention turned to you. You wrote about a balance between gun rights and the right to public peace. And you pointed out that Maine sees itself walking a kind of middle line on guns. Can you talk a little about how you framed your story? I used to live in Maine. I know it's a state of small communities, close-knit communities with a real strong tradition of of hunting and and fishing and, and dads teaching, you know, their kids and moms too, I'm sure, teaching their kids about responsible weapons use, some things like that. But the fact that that violence intruded into even that kind of ideal almost was striking. And it just got me thinking about, you know, we have these two counterbalancing forces. You have constitutional force of the Second Amendment that's been enshrined further and further by the Supreme Court versus this other more broad, maybe less defined desire for peace in our communities and when I went to talk to some experts about it, sure enough, these debates are going on around the country. That idea of, is there a right to peace? You know, 83% of Americans have 
done something in their lives to safeguard themselves from gun violence? I mean, 83%. You know, in the African-American community, for one, I think three out of every 10 people report knowing someone who's been shot, and it's about two out of 10 among white people. So if you look at both sides of this debate, everybody wants peace. Gun owners, responsible gun owners, get their guns and use them for the potential for self-defense because they want peace. You know what I mean? And a lot of Americans buy guns expecting that they may have to serve as kind of right. citizen protectors to protect the peace. So in a new way, it just kind of seemed to me like, wait a minute, everybody kind of wants the same thing. And that's always a good starting point for progress, it seems to me. Right. Uh, there's another view that you reference in this story, and that's that an armed society is a safer society. Yeah. And armed obviously means different things, as you're saying. Um, some people believe guns like the AR-15 belong in non-military, non-law enforcement hands. Right. So when you're reporting, what do you ask of people who seem to authentically hold that view? How do you achieve a balance in stories without you know, creating false equivalencies? I mean, guns are very old technology. Gunpowder and lead with a firing mechanism and a barrel. I mean, it's been around since muskets and the pirates. And if you go through a through line from those early weapons to the AR-15, mm -hmm. it's a design issue, right? I mean, it, it's the same technology. There's no difference. So when people defend the use or the availability of AR-15s, I get it. I mean, they're, you know, the technology is the same. Um, well, what's kind different of the same. though? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, if you've got a um, single shot muzzle loader, as they did in the time of the founding fathers, and then you've got high capacity magazines. Sure. But I guess, you know, automatic weapons are illegal in the United States. An AR-15 is a semi-automatic rifle, mm -hmm. much like a 223 or a 308 hunting rifle is a deer rifle. But you're exactly right. High capacity magazines change the dynamic. And also the AR-15, it was engineered as a weapon of war. It was engineered to kill quickly in small mm -hmm. spaces. And that's what we see, you know, when we see these terrible stories again and again, when people use these and there's no space or time for anyone almost to respond. 10 states have banned assault weapons or AR-15. Mm. So obviously that is a policy that can be pursued. There's a lot more focus too on, you mentioned high capacity magazines. How many times can you fire that weapon without reloading? You know, that's a legitimate issue that gun owners too can at least address without being fundamentalist about it and saying, well, there, there should be no compromise on it. Right. So, right. and when you see polling by Gallup and other polling organizations, not only most Americans want to see just common sense gun policy, but gun owners themselves do. So um, I think there's a great middle, not just of Americans, but of gun owners too, who struggle with this themselves. They, they feel like if I'm a law-abiding gun owner, why shouldn't I be allowed to have this AR-15 semi-automatic rifle that makes me feel safer in my own home when giving it up would have a negligible impact on safety for others? And that's a legitimate question. Of course, there's always a few absolutists, I always acknowledge the kind of extreme viewpoints you have to, but talking to people in the middle, they tend to be <laughs> the weight of the electoral power and that they tend to be far more moderate and reasonable on both sides, frankly. Right. You mentioned the Gallup poll. Um, I just want to array some other stats and evidence because they're interesting to look at. There was a study this fall from the National Institutes of Health indicating that regulations passed from 91 to 2016 were associated with substantial reductions in gun mortality. You know, we've seen charts from the last assault rifle ban from 1994 that show a drop in gun deaths that correlates. So it sounds as though from where you sit, there is some hope for action from 
people that most camps will be able to get behind. It's clear that there's a lot of momentum. Michigan this year, after a shooting there, um, they um, put in a red flag law and also a universal background check for rifles mm -hmm. as well. Um, and Michigan is another kind of sportsman's paradise state. It's also kind of a battleground state. And I think part of that comes from the fact that there is more and more research showing that some of these laws really do matter. I just read a study about red flag laws. Uh, this one academic noted that red flag laws saved over 7,000 lives mm -hmm. in the United States that one year. That's amazing. I also think about, you know, this cannot be solved by policy alone. And I think this kind of mass violence and gun violence is a symptom of other things going on in society, including kind of a pervasive sense of fear about others and, you know, kind of a sense of neighborhoods and communities devolving and mm -hmm. tribalizing and things like that. It's interesting when you look at the most peaceful times in the United States, one great example is after World War II, when the U.S. had one of the lowest murder rates in the world. And the reason is simple. We had come together to fight a world war and, and people were coming home and there was hope. You know, we had done something together and people felt like parts of communities. And, and that's when violence declines. And I think when we see spikes of violence that has to do with guns and has to do with policy, but it also goes deeper than that. I think everyone has a role to play in potentially making that better. Mm. Well, thank you, Patrick, for recognizing all those perspectives, for being here and for your careful reporting on this really important issue. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for listening. To find a transcript in our show notes with links to all of Patrick's work and to some of the other source materials cited today, visit csmonitor.com slash why we wrote this. This episode was hosted by me, Clay Collins, and produced by Mackenzie Farkas and Jingnan Pang. Our sound engineers were Noel Flatt and Alyssa Britton, with original music by Noel Flatt. Produced by the Christian Science Monitor, copyright 2023.